0: It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 58 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.45, where are we at in society? Austin Parks and Rec had to stop an anti-racism initiative for being a little bit racist. At 6.15, it's the first of my two-segment chat with comedian Maz Jobrani, Ahead of his headlining shows at Creek in the Cave this weekend. And a mere seconds, the Commanders land their new head coach at the expense of the Dallas Cowboys. And a new ranking has me wondering, who's the second best head coach in college football right now? I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027ESPN. Well, congratulations to the Washington Commanders. They have their new head man searching for a replacement for the since-fired Ron Rivera. Washington was the last NFL team looking to fill that vacancy of eight or nine that existed this offseason, and they did finally get their guy. A day after Seattle finds their new man with Former Ravens D.C. Mike McDonald, the Commanders, also go defensive in bringing former Dallas Cowboys D.C. Dan Quinn in as the new man in charge. Dan Quinn, of course, responsible for a number of great defenses over the years with Dallas, going back to that Legion of Boom with Seattle, was the head coach with the Atlanta Falcons and had them very close to winning a Super Bowl before that historic collapse up 28-3 against Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. But Dan Quinn gets another opportunity, and this should not be surprising to anybody. He has been a hot commodity on the head coaching market each of the last two off-seasons. And last off-season, he decided to stick with Dallas one more year to try and achieve that ultimate goal. And it actually looked like, and I feel like there were reports a couple of days ago that said he would, in fact, be back in Dallas for one more year. But you have to wonder if Washington misses out on a couple of guys they really wanted, namely Ben Johnson, the OC for the Detroit Lions. The Texans OC was apparently a priority for them, but he signed a contract extension that earned him a raise as well after an exceptional 2023 in H-Town for C.J. Stroud and company. And so... Constellation prize, third place prize, still a pretty darn good prize in my opinion because those other guys are completely untested as head coaches. Dan Quinn has at least a little bit of that experience to go along with a top-notch defensive acumen and Washington is not as bad a situation as some people might think right now. Look, I get it. There's a question mark at quarterback. There should be. Sam Howell doesn't seem like he's the dude, although he had a problem staying upright last year because that offensive line gave up so many sacks, so it's a little tit for tat. How good is the quarterback if the offensive line stinks? But they do have the number two pick in the draft, and they will be selecting a signal caller. Either Jaden Daniels out of LSU or Drake May replacing another Tar Heel alum. And Sam Howell from North Carolina to go along with a pretty good group of wide receivers, talented running backs. You got to get the offensive line right, but you can do that outside of that first or second round through free agency and middle to late round draft picks as well. And then defensively, they have some okay pieces too, and that's where it's Dan Quinn's job to come in and wield his expertise. So the Dallas Cowboys now will be entering the 2024 season minus defensive coordinator Dan Quinn. They will get Diggs back from that knee injury. Van der Esch should be back too, although I don't know what his status is with his football team right now. And whoever takes over as the play caller for the Cowboys – has a lot of fun pieces to work with, starting with Micah Parsons, of course. They need to get a little bit stronger up the middle on the defensive line and at linebacker because they were a bit of a sieve against opposing rushing attacks this last season that was actually running on both sides of the ball was the biggest Achilles heel for this football team. And we'll see if Tony Pollard is going to be back next season. But the Cowboys need to get better in the middle up front. And within that defensive front, you feel pretty good about the secondary right now. And there are pieces within that front that provide cause for optimism, but they need to spruce things up a little bit more there, which is why I would not be surprised to see them go defensive line or maybe even offensive line with their first couple of picks in this year's draft. Jerry Jones said a couple of days ago, they are all in this year. And there are some big-time names, defensive-minded names who are without a job right now, guys who may have been looking for a head coaching gig, but maybe they are content, like what happened with Dan Quinn, moving back to specifically the defensive side of the ball for a year or two before that next round of head coach openings happens. And they find themselves as one of the top candidates for a given gig. Guys like Mike Vrabel, dare I say, Bill Belichick? Eh, probably not. Uh, Mike Zimmer's another guy. There are names like that out there. If the Cowboys could go replace Dan Quinn with Mike Vrabel, which, by the way, I don't think this is happening. It's a complete hypothesis by me, a complete guess. That would be a huge upgrade. And you get insurance for Mike McCarthy. And whatever the hell 2024 holds for Mike McCarthy, if this team starts slow, or if it doesn't seem like they have what they need to to become a Super Bowl contender next season, then Jerry Jones at that point can say, Mike, thank you so much. We're leaving you of your duties. Mike Vrabel, you've been pretty good on the sidelines. You mind taking over while also calling the defense or maybe having somebody else help out with the defense too? I'm sure you would be tickled to do that. Real quick look on the college football side of things. How about this list from on3.com? Top top 10 college football head coaches. Number one is easy, Kirby Smart. Who is the second best coach in college football right now? I mean, the easy answer, if this poll were happening this time a year ago, is Nick Saban 1, Kirby Smart 2. Maybe make the argument for Kirby Smart at one because they had won two straight national championships, but still, you give the GOAT his due respect. And Jim Harbaugh is somewhere on this list as well, but with Harbaugh and Saban gone now, that number two spot is really up for grabs. Dabo Sweeney, other than Kirby Smart, is the only coach on this list that has two national championships, but he's been slow to adapt to the challenges present with NIL in the transfer portal. We've seen his program slipped as a result. A lot of people think he's entering that 2010 to 2013 era that Mac Brown did at Texas. Although Mac tried to evolve a little bit too hard and taking a hard left turn into becoming a power running team despite the fact that his roster offensively was built for a spread attack. But who is the number two? Well, according to On3.com, it's Brian Kelly the current LSU head coach. I don't know if I buy that. I get it. Brian Kelly has been at it for a while, and he was able to keep Notre Dame consistently good, despite the fact that they were working with some disadvantages recruiting-wise and how difficult it can be to get guys into school in South Bend. Yes, that's a real thing. Kalen DeBoer at three. Kalen DeBoer is probably my number two right now, as weird as that may sound. With what he's done at every stop along the way and his football coaching career, including with Washington these last few seasons, getting right to the cusp of a national championship before losing to Michigan and taking over for the GOAT in Tuscaloosa now. Ryan Day at four, Steve Sarkeesian at five. My, how a year changes the perspective on things. You look at this list a year ago, Steve Sarkeesian isn't sniffing the top 10. And this is not only the result of Texas being one of the final four teams in college football this year, but People are taking notice. It's looking like Steve Sarkeesian really knows what he's doing in this era of NIL and transfer portal. Dabo at six, Mike Norvell at seven, Kyle Winningham at eight, Lincoln Riley at nine, and Lane Kiffin at 10. So there you go. Who is your number two? Coming up, we take a break from the sports for another conversation with a very funny guy, comedian Maz Gibrani, ahead of his headlining shows at Creek in the Cave this weekend. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Aster Broni is a longtime stand-up comedian and actor whose acting credits include everything from Friday After Next to Curb Your Enthusiasm. As a comedian, you can check out his newest stand-up special, The Birds and the Bees, for free on YouTube through his channel. Or you can check him out live this weekend here in Austin. He's headlining at Creek and the Cave Friday and Saturday. Two shows each night. Go to creekandcave.com to snag those tickets. Moz, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm well. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: I'm um, great and uh, excited to have you in Austin this weekend. I'm not totally sure, so I'm just going to ask, have you had a chance to perform stand-up in Austin in the past?
1: I have performed stand-up in Austin a couple of times in the past. One time, it was kind of funny, one time, um, MySpace, as MySpace was um, ending its run, they started doing these things called uh, the super-secret comedy shows hmm. where they would, like, announce – on, you know, the night before, two nights before, and then the place would fill up. Well, I caught the tail end of that. So it was at a point where nobody was on MySpace. So they're like, let's do a super secret comedy show for you at, um, I think it's called Cap Cities. And I was like, let's do it. And then as like, as we approached the date, they were like, oh, we've only had like 10 RSVPs. And I'm like, well, what's going on? They go, well, you know, MySpace really isn't a thing anymore. I was like, well, then why am I doing this with you? but it was fun. The audience was fun. We had a good time and we ended up last minute, you know, getting more people to come out. And then I came back one other time. Um, I do a show on NPR called wait, wait, don't tell me, which yeah. is a fake news quiz. So we came to the, I think it's the, is it the Paramount theater there in, yeah. In, in, yeah, we came out and did two nights at the Paramount and that was fun. They, uh, they, they, it was leading up to Christmas, not this year, I think the year before. Okay. So they had some like christmas event going on and since the npr was the co-sponsor of the christmas event they took me and the other comedians out to their big christmas thing and they had us kind of join in with the carolers for a minute it was kind of it was kind of funny um but i love i love austin Man, who doesn't love austin I'm, I'm excited this is my first time headlining a legit show in austin so i'm really happy
0: yeah, Creek in the Cave is a really fun room. I know that the Saturday early show is already sold out, and these other shows will sell out as well. So go to creekandcave.com to snag tickets for uh, Maz's shows. Friday night, 7 and 9, I believe. That Saturday night, 9, 9 p.m. show is still available. And I'm on the inside here, so I don't know how big of a deal this is elsewhere. You, uh, I believe your roots are in L.A., if I'm not mistaken. One of your home clubs is the Comedy Store, which is obviously uh, – Been a long-time hotspot for stand-up comedy. New York also qualifies, California to a lesser degree. Austin finds itself as a sort of stand-up mecca all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere. Uh, Is this something that people in California are talking about as well, just how big of a stand-up scene uh, uh, Austin has acquired over the last couple of years?
1: Well, I don't know if people are talking about it as much, but I think people have taken note. And that is, especially for me as well, because as I'm coming there, um, I know a lot of the old L.A. guys that are out there. So I'm reaching out and going like, hey, I'm going to be in Austin for a couple of days. Want to grab a coffee? And it, it used to be you would do that if you're going to New York or you're going to L.A. But now Austin has is like the third leg in that case. Because if you think about it, you know, there's obviously a lot of cities where you could do a lot of comedy. But I think the base that was set down with, you know, Joe Rogan and then all the other guys coming through, um, that, that they've set up there and now multiple comedy clubs. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely another, you know, another base of comedy. And, and I'm, and I'm excited about that. As comedians, you know, it's interesting whenever I travel, uh, if I go, like if I'm in New York, for example, and I'm gigging somewhere, um, after my show, I know that I can always go down to you know, uh, the comedy cellar or something, and run into some comics and just hang out all night and talk. So um, uh, that's that's kind of I think Austin is starting to pick up that reputation, and uh, I'm excited for it, man. It's good, good for you guys, and, and why not? You know, it's a great city, and and I'm happy that now it's got this great comedy scene, and and a lot of comedians enjoy coming there.
0: By the same token, the comedy store is obviously different level. I'd say comedy store and the comedy cellar are the two biggest. Places in the country in terms of reputation and just how good they still are. Uh, when did you start in stand-up, Moz? And at what point did you make your way to the comedy store?
1: I started in 1998 in L.A. You know, a lot of people don't get started in L.A. They come from other places. Yeah. I started in L.A. and because uh, I I grew up in Northern California, and my parents, being immigrant parents, wanted me to be a lawyer, doctor, engineer. So I kind of shifted, went, you know, tried different careers along the way. And I was in my mid-20s. And I said, let me do this. Started in 98. And then I think by 99, I was doing basically open mics and bringer shows at the comedy store. And I was there. I was there in the dark ages of the comedy store. So I'd be, you know, I would get, I used to get, and and I wasn't not a dirty comic, but Mitzi Shore would put me up uh, at like midnight after, let's say, Joe Diaz, Joe Rogan, Eddie Griffin, Andrew Dice Clay. So it was this lineup of guys that were all monsters and they were all really like edgy and dirty. And then I'd be going up and trying to do my act about politics or something. And I remember having a conversation with Joe Diaz about like, why is she putting me up late? He's like, bro, she's got plans for you, bro. (laughs) And so I really, I grew there. I, I always tell comedians that are starting out, I go, put yourself in the most uncomfortable position to be in, whether it's like being the opening act as people are still walking in or being the closing act as people are leaving. I said, that's where you grow. And so the comedy store was my home for the longest time. I still love that place. I still go to the comedy store, uh, whenever I'm in town in LA and it's, I I saw it go from a place where, I mean, the dark ages were crazy. Like you'd show up on a Friday night and the, the original room would be half empty and the main room would be pretty much empty. Um, But now it's packed and it's got the best of the best. And even back then I had the best. You know, back then, the truth is I was happy about it back then because there was no stakes. You would show up and you wouldn't feel like, oh, I have to impress everybody. I could experiment and I could grow. And I did. I grew exponentially at the comedy store. And if anybody ever comes to L.A., you got to It's the mecca of comedy in many ways. and, and And I highly recommend it as a place to go see.
0: I've heard other comics talk about it being dark days in the 90s, even though there were some big-time comedians there. What was the turning point for that place at some point in the early 2000s?
1: Yeah, so I would say it was the, like, I started, like I said, in the late 90s. So it was late 90s to the early aughts. It was very interesting. So I think Mitzi, Mitzi had made people regulars that reminded her of, the heyday of the 80s. So oh. she had like a guy who kind of reminded her of Richard Pryor. She had a guy that reminded her of Jim Carrey. She had a guy that reminded her of Gary Shandling. Those guys would all be up, but they were not Richard Pryor and Gary Shandling and uh Jim Carrey. They were they were like some of them were just not funny. And so the club had some comics who we're not up to par, and then and then people just didn't want to come. Industry didn't want to come. All that stuff, and I would say probably like somewhere, probably in the mid aughts, like two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, they started bringing in more um, co- comedians that were established, that were funny, that were then bringing people to the to the club. And also, you had guys like Joe Rogan who was starting to do more social media type stuff. Then podcasts came in. Podcasts were a huge game changer. I remember going up at the club when Joey Diaz had his podcast. Of course, Joe Rogan has his podcast, uh, Mark Marin's podcast. And I remember telling some other comedians, I said, you know what's great about those guys bringing their fan base is that those fans are comedy fans. So we're not just performing to some random tourists that don't know what comedy is. We're performing to comedy fans and that makes all the a world of difference because they understand comedy. They know that these are jokes. They know when to laugh. And all of a sudden, the co- clubs, the, the comics just seemed hotter. I mean, the, the crowds seemed hotter and hotter. And it's just continued, you know, as you get guys like Andrew Santino and Bobby Lee and, uh, um, you, know, uh, you know, Eliza Schlesinger, Netflix specials, all that stuff, every social media thing, everything has added up to the point where I think worldwide comedy fans are, more savvy now. And so when you get a comedy fan, it makes a world of difference for comedians because the worst thing for a comedian is to go up there and be like, I am slinging my best stuff and I'm getting nothing out of this audience because they don't get comedy. So I, I knock on wood, we've come to a point where a lot of these fans do get it.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's interesting place also because sometimes you have to work out material and you can you know you can go to the comedy store and because it's a, uh, a top-notch crowd, they're, they're going to be the great equalizer. Even if they're familiar with you and you've made them laugh in the past, if uh, the joke that you're telling is not refined enough just yet, it's going to fall flat. It's not going to get that laugh. And so you're going to have to make that mental note that something needs to be done a little bit differently the next time.
1: I feel like, you know, back in the day, again, when the stakes were even lower... A lot of comedians were a lot more open to trying out new material. And I think I heard Chris Rock or somebody talk about how the, the, the uh, uh double-edged sword of success is the more successful you are, the harder it is to try new material, go out on that plank. Because when when somebody says, Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Rock is here, everyone expects rock and roll. But he's there to work out material. And I've seen actually Chris Rock is a master at this. I've seen him show up at places and be like, hey guys, lower your expectations. I'm just trying stuff out. And he'll try the stuff out and then he'll hit them with the old stuff and they're with him. Uh, similarly at the comedy store now, for me, what I'll do is if I have a new idea, I'll throw it right in the middle of a set that's happening. Or sometimes I'll start at the beginning and I'll just come in hot with like this idea. And i that's where we work our stuff out. So no matter how hot of a crowd it is, you're always wanting to try stuff out. The the biggest problem comes when the person before you just slays and you're like, Oh God, now I can't really try that new bit. I was going to do. I got to go up there and follow that wave for a second. Um, But it's all, it's all, man, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, if you're a comedy fan and I am a comedy fan, I was a fan first. um, It's such a beautiful thing to watch and be like, and try to figure out like, okay, how do I, how do I take this person who just killed this audience and they think this person is a god, how do I follow that person and still bring in the new bit that I wanted to bring in and get my objective fulfilled?
0: He is Maj Dabrani, headlining shows at Creek and the Cave this weekend, Friday, Saturday night. Two shows each night. Go to creekandcave.com for more info and to snag those tickets. Coming up, one more segment with Maz on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie it's sports day
1: plus with trey ellie
0: back with stand-up comedian Maj jabrani headlining at creek in the cave friday and saturday night two shows each night go to creekandcave.com to snag those tickets maz when do you think you got really good at stand-up
1: Again, man, I people hit me up all the time. Hey, can you watch my clips? You know, I'm, I'm a comedian. I've been doing this for two years. And I go, listen, I don't need to watch it. You don't need my feedback on your clips. What you need to do is keep writing, keep getting on stage about five to 10 times a week. After five years, you're going to start feeling pretty good. After 10 years, you're actually going to be pretty good. So I remember I think about 10 years in, I was like, oh, I'm pretty good. But 20 years in, I remember saying like, I think I was on stage one time and I was like, I'm really good at this. Like I, I even said it. And then I saw Ch- Chappelle say that in a special. And I was like, Oh, he feels like that he's 10 years further in. I was like, Oh, I wonder if I'll, I'm sure I'll feel even more. So it really is a Jedi thing, right? I think Seinfeld was talking about that. It really is. Was it a Seinfeld or Chris Rock? It really is a Jedi. Like, like the 10 years in, you start going like, I got this 20 years in you go, I could, I could go up anywhere. Um, and I feel that now I feel very comfortable and comp, you know, the audience, The audience wants to see you be comfortable. So whether you're in front of a corporate crowd or you're in front of a crowd that's a foreign crowd or whatever it is, if you are under control, the audience feels under control. And sometimes being under control takes you, you know, calling the elephant in the room. It's like takes you going up on stage and going like, wow, I've never done stand-up, you know, in a a train station or wherever you are, right? I recently did stand-up at some like tennis club um, and some offside, some room off to the side at the tennis club, and I was just making fun of the fact that, like, oh my God, I'm at a tennis club, and the same guy who booked me there had booked me to deli once before, and I was like, guys, this is a step up. I go, last time you booked me, I was at a deli. so they, I'm doing self-deprecating stuff, but I'm being honest, and they're seeing that I've got control, so that when I go into my material, they come with me. So that comes, that comes, you know, at least ten years in. I, I don't think you you feel that comfort before then.
0: I was talking to Donnell Rawlings a month or so ago, and he mentioned to me that he had just filmed his new stand-up special. It'll be coming out on Netflix sometime soon. And it was literally in the middle of recording, uh, one of the two or three times that he was recording through that special, he had this sort of out-of-body experience. And he realized in that moment, as he's talking and, and like giving his material out to the crowd, he's like, wow, I just realized that however I choose to uh, give this to an audience, whether I'm saying it, whether I'm writing it out, whether I'm singing it, perhaps like this is going to kill regardless of how I choose to do it. I've finally reached that point in my stand-up career. You talked a little bit earlier about a concept that is so important for people nowadays because we're at a time and look, it's not easy for everybody. Some people have really hard existences, but a lot of people have really easy existences versus how things used to be. And that is putting yourself in difficult situations, Um, It's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. So when did that idea really start to click for you? Was it a matter of uh, growing up as a kid who had immigrated from uh, Iran to the Bay Area at such a young age, trying to fit in with other kids around you and realizing that going through that difficulty actually made you a stronger person after a little bit?
1: Look, I think you look back on your life and I heard Michelle Obama recently say that everything you do every day is practice for the future. And so I'll I'll give you a couple examples. One is, um, you know, I'm a big, I played soccer growing up and my wife, uh, when my son was doing club soccer, which basically takes over your life, she was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why is he doing it? Why is he doing it? I said, babe, it's not just him. You know, yeah, he's not gonna be a professional soccer player, but it's about him learning the idea of hard work, teamwork, and getting somewhere. And I use that example of when I was in high school, we had a good team. And the idea was to put in the effort to continue to be better and you know, win the championship. And so I used to jog, we had a hill, like it was like two miles or so. I would jog uphill to be in shape uh, for this season. And we won. And I said, it's the hard work that I put in my head back then that when I end up then at the comedy clubs, And I'm standing there for my midnight spot and Dice comes over and he shows up and he goes, I'm going to go do 45 minutes. Now we're at 1245 because, you know, veteran comics could bump newer guys. So then now we're at 1245. Then Eddie Griffin shows up. He does another 45. Now we're, you know, 130. And then somebody else shows up and you end up at like 145 being the last spot. Now, a lot of other comics that were at my level at that time were getting in their cars and leaving, but I was staying. I was saying because I knew that this was finally the thing that I wanted to do, and so that was where some of that work ethic was coming in. And so, no gig was a gig where I was going to leave. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna be intimidated to not follow anybody. I followed some amazing comedians and died a death sometimes. And sometimes I learned learned how to follow amazing comedians. I would drive all over wherever I could for like you know twenty dollar gig here. You know, three hour drive for twenty dollars. It wasn't the $20, it was the 15, 20 minutes on stage. So I realized hard work comes in. And then the other thing about taking the risks, you know, one night there was a comedian named Freddie Soto. He, he was actually from El Paso, Texas, um, who was one of the funniest guys. He was getting ready to hit. He, back in the day, he was on tour with him, Pablo Francisco, Carlos Mencia, Bobby Lee. And Freddie was just funny, funny, funny. And one night in the original room, I had like the 145 spot. Freddie was sitting in the back, where Mitzi's chair was right by the exit, this dark room, I couldn't really see him. I went on stage, I started doing my jokes. And the only people that were actual audience members, there was these two kind of nerdy looking guys with this one really hot girl. And I start doing my act at 145 and about, you know, a minute or two in where it's all lukewarm. I go, what am I doing? I just start talking to them. I go, guys, I'm curious, how did you two end up with her? What's the story here? And I just started talking to them and then they would respond. I would respond. They're laughing. I'm laughing. I'm riffing. I'm going back into material. I'm coming out of material. And I did my 15 minute set and I came off and Freddie who had been sitting in the back. He goes, Hey man, you're funny. I go, thanks. He goes, yeah. He goes, it's not about the bits. He goes, you're either funny or you're not. He goes, you got that thing. And that was really uh, a, a big uh, encouragement point for me. And it was also a big eye opener of you've got to, Put yourself in these uncomfortable positions because that's where you go past these bits that are basically, your bits are are, are things that you're leaning on. Your bits are your safety net. Extending yourself into the reality of the moment is where you really find out if you're funny or not. And so now, because of that muscle that I grew then, now when I do a show, I can do five, 10 minutes of just crowd work at the top, talking to people and being comfortable in that. And then going to my bits and then coming out and being honest. And there's times when I'll go up on stage and maybe a bit comes out of being honest. There's been times when like, I went to, <laughs> I, I don't know what was going on one day. I was just recently, like, this was like a few months ago. I was just grumpy. I felt grumpy. I was, I was upset at my wife, my kids, my dog, everybody in the house for whatever reason. And I'm not a grumpy person, but I was grumpy. And I went up on stage at the laugh factory and I just, I just started talking. I go, guys, I'm so happy I'm here. I could talk to you guys, and I started kind of like, you know, uh, going off on my family and my and my dog. But it was fun. It was like therapeutic, and it was uh, something that would that was also material creating because I'm in a real emotional place. You know, that's the best comedy is where it comes from an emotional point of view. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think you just gotta you gotta be willing and able to leave the material in the safety net and just and just be all
0: right last question maz speaking of funny the beginning of the end of curb your enthusiasm is this sunday the first episode of the final season you were in an earlier episode of this incredible series what was that experience like
1: Yeah, I played in the season where Larry and David Schwimmer are doing the they're doing the producers on Broadway. I played this Indian Sikh who worked at the hotel where Larry is uh, staying. And then I fix his air conditioner and he doesn't tip me. And then he ends up tipping me tickets to his um, to his performance. And then I end up finding David Schwimmer's watch and we get into a wrestling match. It was a lot of fun. I'll be honest with you. It was for comedians. Some of the most fun is when you're told to improvise. Like I was in the movie Friday after next with uh, Ice Cube, Cat Williams, uh, uh, you know, Mike Epps.
0: The underrated Christmas movie of all time, by the way. It's
1: a great movie and it's so much fun. And that was one of those where the director is Marcus Brayboy and produced by, you know, Ice Cube. Ice Cube's smart. He casts comedians and he goes, improvise. Hmm. So we would get the scene as is. And then it would say look Mike's going to go off so just go with him. John Witherspoon was another one. I mean it was it was made Terry Crews it was what a great cast. But the, my favorite moments were when the improv would start and I could just go on and on and on. And similarly with Curb I just remember doing my my stuff with Larry and they would be like okay Larry doesn't tip you you're angry and it was like okay just make it up. And I remember one time cuz as actors a lot of times you got to like keep saying the same lines in the exact same way with the same hand movements that you've done in the previous take. And I remember one time I did a take on curb and then I went to Jeff Garland. I go, Hey, do you remember if I put the, like, you know, whatever did, you know, move my hand this way or that way. I want to replicate it. He goes, who cares? He goes, just do it differently. I was like, Oh my God, I'm so free. I can do whatever I want. So it, hey, what a, what a great experience. And actually when we filmed my episode, they flew me out to New York cause it was happening in New York yep. and I got to actually, uh, be in the same, uh, episode with, uh, Stephen Colbert. He had a very small This is before he had the, you know, the Colbert report and all that stuff. He had a small, uh, scene in there. Uh, Paul Mazursky. Um, it was just so cool to just be around these people and hear stories. And, and, um, we shared the same trailer and Mazursky was telling us stories of like working with Federico Fellini. And I mean, what a, what a great, great time. And, yeah, I love that show. I'm still a big fan of it, and, and I'm excited to watch this this last season. No,
0: oh, that does sound like a great time. It's also going to be a great time if you make your way to Creek in the Cave this weekend to see Maj Jobrani. He is headlining shows Friday and Saturday night. Two shows Friday night, two shows Saturday. The early show on Saturday is sold out, but you can get tickets to the other shows by going to creekandcave.com. Also, make sure to check out his latest special. That's right, The Birds and the Bees, as he mentioned, came out last year. It's available for free on YouTube. Just go to Maz's YouTube page to check that out, or you can just go to his website, majdobrani.com. Maz, thank you so much for the time today, man. Safe travels to and from Austin.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward. Take care.
0: Coming up and Where We At In Society, Austin Parks and Rec had to stop an anti-racism initiative from being a little bit racist. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Coming up, it is Where We At In Society. First, though, I need to let you know about a friend of mine. Brian Hummel is his name. His website is HummelRealtor.com. Are you searching for your dream home in Austin? Or maybe you're curious about how much your home is worth? Look no further than Brian Hummel, your trusted Austin realtor with Realty One Group Prosper. Brian is more than just a realtor, he's a full-service expert, overseeing your entire transaction from start to finish. He'll lead you through each step of the buying or selling process, with questions answered and details explained in plain English. With over two decades in Austin, Brian has witnessed the dynamic growth and evolution of the Central Texas market, making him your invaluable resource for buying, selling, and investing. Plus, as a certified real estate negotiator, Brian brings a strategic and skillful approach to bargaining. He secures the best deals, whether it's getting the highest price for a seller or the most favorable term for a buyer. When you choose Brian Hummel as your realtor, you're not just hiring a real estate expert, you're gaining a trusted partner committed to your success. It's been strange living here in Central Texas over the last year. With as hot as the housing market normally is, things actually cooled off in 2023. But guess what? Signs are pointing to that all turning around this year. We're at that strange point where it's actually a good situation for both buyer and seller. That's why if you're either, you need to contact Brian Hummel today at 512-619-1347. That's 619 1347, or log on to his website, HummelRealtor.com. That's H U M M E L Realtor.com. Brian Hummel with Realty One, the one you need. It is the last segment of today's show, which means it's time for
1: Where Are We At in Society Today?
0: That's right, it is your regular look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will bring you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out, but sadly, today is not that day. We start right here in beautiful Austin, Texas. Headline, Austin Parks and Recreation Pauses Anti-Racism Initiative that separated groups by race. Oh boy. Sometimes real headlines sound like onion headlines. The Austin Parks and Recreation Department has walked back a January 25th email. This is from the Austin American Statesman that announced a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative that appeared to segregate non white and white employees into different groups. Department Director Kimberly McNeely apologized to employees the next day and canceled the proposed meetings. The email, obtained by the statesman, had announced the creation of two anti-racist affinity groups for a program titled Healing from Racial Trauma. John Nixon, a CitySpark spokesperson, said the original employee email was, quote, not vetted. Yeah, I'll say. The message was inappropriate, does not reflect the values of the Parks and Rec Department. McNeely said in her email to employees, I apologize for the exclusion of employees in any space. Yeah, exclusion goes in the opposite direction of inclusion, doesn't it? The original email, which appears to have been sent to all Parks and Rec Department employees, announced an affinity space for people of color to share about our personal and professional experiences with racism. The email says, quote, to cultivate a brave and safe space for attendees, we ask that you do not attend these spaces if you are not a person of color. Another group was planned for white employees in which participants would, in part, share about their ongoing learning about anti-racism and explore their role in disrupting racism in and outside of work. Let me go ahead and fill you in on something. If you're using a word like anti-racism, pretty much anything else you say, will be taken by anybody else with half a brain with a very large grain of salt. It is an idiotic concept, and you actually knowingly wrote this, excluding white people from, I don't know, if you really want to have groups come together and talk about their experiences of people for color, have an audience of, let's say, white people who can maybe hear about those experiences and if they didn't already have compassion, which many might, and it's a little bit racist to assume that they don't, might gain a little bit more compassion as a result. But instead, you decided to separate those groups by white and non-white. Were there separate water fountains at Austin Parks and Rec in the department? Separate bathrooms, perhaps? If everybody was taking a trip out in the field or there are different sections of the bus for the whites and non-whites to sit in. I mean, this is ridiculous. I'm glad it was called out and I'm glad it's being walked back now. Look, I people make mistakes and you shouldn't completely ruin somebody for a mistake that they made. This is a pretty massive mistake though. So I'll be curious to see what happens with Kimberly McNeely. Perhaps it's not anything, but this is a... It's a pretty bad one right here. I mean, you are representing an entire community. You're representing the department that deals with parks and recreation. And this sort of nonsense comes out. Very embarrassing. Fortunately, Austin's not nearly as embarrassing. Far from it, by the way. I love Austin. Examples like this need to be talked about so we can avoid these similar sorts of things happening again. But Austin, for all of its quirkiness and weirdness and at times its overreach pales in comparison to what California regularly tries to do to its population. How about this story? Yesterday, by the way, we had another car story where Ford applied for a patent to allow its self-driving cars to self-repossess if you are delinquent on paying your bill. That was more of a general Ford story. This is more of a state of California story where There is a bill that is going through the legislative process right now that calls for the car companies to make new cars that are unable to speed. That's right. Someday in the not too distant future, it might no longer be possible to drive a brand new car faster than 80 miles per hour in California. That's because State Senator Scott weiner I don't care if his name is Weiner; I'm pronouncing it like Weiner. the rest of this story. State Senator Scott Weiner earlier this week proposed a new bill that aims to prevent certain new vehicles from going more than 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. In California, the maximum posted speed limit is 70 miles per hour, meaning anything north of 80 miles per hour would be off limits. The Speeding and Fatality Emergency Reduction on California Streets, or Safer California Streets bill, cute there, is a package of bills that includes SB 961 that was published on Tuesday, and it calls for speed governors on new cars and trucks built or sold in California starting with the year 2027 models. These vehicles would be required to have an intelligent speed limiter system that electronically prevents the driver from speeding above the aforementioned threshold. The speed limiter tech wouldn't apply to emergency vehicles. There's also language in the bill that the passive device would have the ability to be temporarily disabled by the driver, but it's unclear in what situations that might apply. The bill also states that automakers would be able to disable the speed limiter fully, but presumably only for authorized emergency vehicles. Oh, and the commissioner of the California Highway Patrol could also authorize disabling the speed limiter too at their discretion. So basically, the car companies and the top bureaucrat in the state would be able to decide whether or not you could go 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. Wiener was asked for a comment on the bill by ABC 7 News in California. His response, quote, I don't think it's at all an overreach, and I don't think most people would view it as an overreach. We have speed limits. I think most people support speed limits because people know that speed kills. Yeah, in a sense it does. I remember in defensive driving back in the day, the number one cause of accidents was people driving too slow, people driving too far below the speed limit. But yes, speed can be a problem with accidents and fatal accidents too, for sure. But I feel like that's only part of the story here. I see the statistics out there. A rise in traffic fatalities in California from 2019 to 2022, a 20% 22% 22% increase, excuse me. And from 2017 to 2021, speed-relating deaths in California increased by 30%. Nationally, they've increased by almost 24% during that time. But again, that's only part of the story here. What's the other part of the story that is probably more of a burden to people in the accidents that have been caused in the last five plus years? Definitely the last five years that maybe go along with speed, that make the speed thing even more dangerous? How about the fact that, I don't know, four out of five cars, nine out of 10 cars now, if you look at the driver as you're passing by them, which keep your eyes on the road, but if you have a sec, take a glance over, how many people do you see that are on their damn phones that are literally looking or typing or reading something off of their phone while they're behind the wheel of the car? That is the bigger cause for accidents, fatalities, even if there is a speed element at play too. I guarantee you. I know that because I feel like we've seen an exponential increase in just overall accidents that involve, I don't know, like three, four, five car pileups, where it's like every person in that line was not only driving too closely, maybe driving too fast, but was looking at their phone rather than keeping their eyes on the road. It's not rocket science here, people. All right, that is it for another edition of Sports Day Plus. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening, and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.